0: With my background in the police and the military, it came with it a certain skill
1: set. A particular set of skills. Sorry, had to be done.
0: In every single case, whether it's an extortion, a kidnapping, even though I'm like a swan, sliding along gracefully, but my heart's going ten to the dozen. And if I allowed the, the ego to show up, or allowed my nerves to get the better of me, then ultimately, you know, people could die. There I was... Going all over the place, saving other people's lives, yet I couldn't save the one life that mattered. You know, working with Dave Asprey and part of Bulletproof Coaching and Tony Robbins, setting up my own business in the kidnapping negotiation field, helping out charities and crisis hotlines, and going into schools about talking about mental health and keynotes, and then writing the book. So none of that would have happened had those tragedies not happened the way they did.
1: My guest today is Scott Walker, one of the world's most experienced kidnap for ransom negotiators. He has helped resolve over 300 cases as well as other crises including piracy and cyber extortion. When it comes to understanding how people think, feel and act particularly in times of high stress conflict and uncertainty, Scott is the leader in his field. Scott was born in Birmingham before working in counterterrorism operations in New Scotland Yard and then attending to corporate kidnaps worldwide. Scott now teaches the skills he had learned and mastered around the world and has put them all into an accessible to all book, Order Out of Chaos, where he guides the reader to become a world-class communicator and win every negotiation. In every episode, I ask my guests to share their life lessons with me, the tools, tactics and strategies they've learned from navigating their way through the tougher stuff life throws at them. What fascinates me about Scott's life lessons is the perspective he has on so many different and high-stakes events. That I have no doubt we are going to learn a lot today. Welcome to the podcast, Scott Walker. Thank you for having me. You're an intimidating person to <laughs> sit across the table from, <laughs> oh, dear. Because <laughs> I feel like you can see the matrix. I feel like you can see what I'm not saying.
0: <laughs> Potentially.
1: <laughs> You're not going to let on.
0: No, not yet. I don't <laughs> want to give all my secrets away. You
1: don't want to. Well. well, what's in the book then? Uh,
0: that's true. <laughs>
1: Um, The obvious question, how did you get into this?
0: Yeah, great question. Well, I was a police officer um, back in the late 90s I joined and had a great career. I did organised crime and public order and investigations and counterterrorism. And then towards the last few years of my career, I got invited to try out for the, the negotiation team. And actually I didn't really know much about it. And I bumped into a former colleague in the canteen one day and he just spent three or four days on a kidnapping job. And I was just mesmerized and he said, well, okay, well, I'll put you in touch with a team that does all the training and the selection for it. And, uh, next thing I know I get selected and been woken up at 4am in the morning to race across the other side of London to help resolve a kidnapping.
1: It's, it sounds, because I think probably the only context in which people listening to this, and certainly me, can think of this, is like it's very glamorous in that I've seen it in films and I've seen it on television and it's portrayed as you're the cool guy. You walk in and everyone shuts up and you can read a room like nobody else. But I imagine that it takes a long time to get yeah. to that sort of smoothness if you like, in how you do the job.
0: Absolutely. And they say practice makes perfect, but actually practice makes permanent. And the first few cases I was involved in, I was allowing my own emotions to to come to the fore and um, even get you know frustrated with some of the families or the clients, for example, because they weren't following our instructions. But I suddenly realised, you know what, I need to learn from the best. So I looked around at some of the really experienced negotiators and... It was just like a sponge, just hoovering up. How did they do it? How did they stay calm when it was all going to to, to chaos around them, mm. and then get the result at the same time?
1: Is that fundamentally the core of the job? Is staying calm and being able to see what's happening without any emotion? I think it's when you turn
0: up on a case, the 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 client will not. It's the family somewhere in the world, or it's a corporate setting. It's as if the cavalry have arrived you walk in the door and even though I'm like a swan sliding along gracefully but my <laughs> heart's going ten to the dozen it's they're looking at you to to resolve this um, and I don't think it's a question of not having any emotions at all far from it in fact it's Having the emotions show up, but not allowing yourself to get knocked off mm. course, if that makes sense. Mm. So it's, you know, we we'll talk about it later and I mentioned in the book around some of the ways I did that. Um, because if I didn't, if I allowed the, the ego to show up or allowed my nerves to get the better of me, then ultimately, you know, people could die. And that's the last thing we, we wanted, obviously. Mm. Um, so yeah.
1: Are you like Matthew McConaughey in True Detective? Do you just like occasionally take your pulse or look at your smartwatch and just check what your heartbeat is? Well I,
0: well, we're well, <laughs> a whoop. So sometimes I do check it out and see um <laughs> see where that's going.
1: Interesting. Because that must be a skill in in and of itself. Because is that the only way that you can tell that you're <clears throat> is that a good measure for I'm dealing with this situation okay, or my vitals seem to be fairly stable? I think it's
0: more of a, I mean, the technology is great Mm. and it's all data, isn't it? Really at the end of the day. But I think the data we can sometimes overlook is how we feel. Mm -hmm. One of the things I used to do literally every single case before every single call with the kidnappers was just spend a second to just check in with myself. Mm -hmm. What's showing up in my body right now? Am I, is my heart beating? You know, is it churning in my stomach? All right, Great. Don't try to push it away or deny it, but just be with it for a couple of seconds and then breathe through it um, and then engage as as needed.
1: I've said this before on the podcast, it feels like a good time to mention it, is that if I have a knee-jerk reaction, then I will be a jerk. (laughs) And I wonder whether that's something that perhaps we can learn from you, which is take that beat before you act, because sometimes that initial action is not going to mm. be helpful.
0: Yep, it's a very good point point. <laughs> and actually there's um I'm not sure if you've read it I'm sure you have is man's search for meaning, Victor Frankl. It was not he was fair. a guy it's it's a book I highly recommend everybody to read. It's a really thin book, man's search for meaning. And in it Victor Frankl, he was an Auschwitz survivor, he's a psychotherapist. And when he came out, he wrote this book around The people who survived and thrived as a result, what did they do differently from the people who actually struggled and then didn't really have a life afterwards? And it was they they understood that between the stimulus, something happening, the trigger, and you responding, there's a gap. Mm. And that gap just could be a second, a split second. And that's the only thing you control in your life. It's you get to choose how you're going to respond. And the more of a gap you can put in place mm. from the tweet, the social media post, the road rage, somebody saying something you don't like or not saying something you want them to do, and just pausing that split second so you don't do the knee jerk thing. Right. How am I going to react? Right. And then you can engage. Mm. And it takes practice. You know, even if it means just getting up and walking out the room. Or if you sat down, standing up, and going doing some jumping jacks, or whatever it is for you, or some breath. But yeah, if you can bring that gap, it, it's a superpower.
1: I love a jumping jack. As someone who works from home, there's nothing like it. No, when you've been sitting down too long, a couple of jumping, well, a few jumping jacks. Um, right. I ask all of my guests to talk to me about their relationship with risk, mm. and I'm always fascinated by what answer the person sitting in front of me might give. But I think with you, it feels like it, of course it's going to be multi-layered and there's going to be a perspective here that perhaps I might not have heard before. So what would you say your relationship with risk is like?
0: First of all, it's not a dirty word. Mm -hmm. And people try and avoid risk, but actually... As the cliche goes, the growth lies at the edge of your comfort zone, and you have to take some risks to get there. Mm. Um, I'm not taking, talking about rec- being reckless. It's taking a calculated risk to do something that maybe you, you don't feel like you want to do, but you know it's good for you. Mm. You know, and it's be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and interestingly, risk for me, you could argue, well, physically, whether or not it was in the police. Whether or not it's in the negotiation or the time I spent, I did some time in the military as well. Physically, very risky scenarios. But for me, probably the biggest risk wasn't a physical one and never really has been. It was actually a decision that was risky for me, was actually leaving the police to then go off into the big, bad private sector.
1: (laughs) It feels like a trench coat comes with that decision. And like, it becomes the trench coat, <laughs> and it's
0: like, oh, this big bad corporate world out there. But actually, in the end, looking back, it was you know, one of the best decisions I have ever made. But actually, making that call to leave in a career from a career that I loved mm. every single day, I loved it. 16 years, there was a, not a single day I didn't enjoy going to work. Um, but it came a point. Um, which you which can talk about in a moment, is I thought, right, do you know what, now's the time to go. Mm. But, yeah very risky.
1: Was there a period, How and if there was, how long was it, between I'm going to stay put and I'm going to jump?
0: I think, like with a lot of these decisions, it's a slow burner without really realising it. And then it comes that moment where you go, Hang on, where's this come from? But actually it's been there for one. If you really stop and look for the signs and when you look backwards, mm. you go, oh, yeah, of course. And then so I think over a period of time it built up and built up. And then there's a really short period um other, th- other things happened as well when I left the police and it all kind of came to a head. So, yeah, I'd say over a couple of weeks, I reckon, maybe a month or so.
1: You said that you loved every day that Mm. you went to that job for 16 years, but I've said you were in counterterrorism, organized crime. And before we started recording listeners, I said the things that you must know would be the reason why I wouldn't be able to sleep. And so I just want to ask you about that because you really enjoyed it. Where is the enjoyment in a job where you perhaps see that that part of humanity?
0: I think for me it was... The sense of purpose that being a police officer gave, and I know the police are getting a hard time, particularly in the media at the moment through a few, you know, bad examples. But I, the ninety-nine percent of, of cops are really hardworking, professional people who risk their lives every single day, not knowing if you're going to go see your kids when you um, when you get back home. Um. And for me, it was. Um, giving a voice to people who didn't have a voice. So when you're sitting down with a family who've lost somebody because they've been killed or they've been violently assaulted, or they've had something stolen from them, or they've been going about their day to day life. And then somebody's interfered with that, you know, in a criminal way. And I thought, you know what, these people don't have a voice. Yeah. I was fortunate. I had a platform, so to speak, as a police officer to stand up for these people and make sure people were held to account for that.
1: That's a really lovely answer. Thank you.
0: So that's why. That's why.
1: <laughs> so you make the decision mm. to go into the private sector. I don't know why but that does sound like it should come with the theme tune. Um, what does that look like? Is there a blueprint for what that will look like? Or could you basically write your own job journey? I think, with my background
0: in the police and the military, it it came with a certain skill set. But just because a particular set of skills, <laughs> sorry, had to be done. Feel <laughs> like a Liam Nielsen line, isn't it? Really? <laughs> um I, I think some people when they leave either the military or the police, they think, "Yeah, I've got all these great skills. I can just walk into any other job." And also, some of them think, "Well, actually." being able to interview somebody or being able to fire a certain weapon. How's that going to suit me in in Mm. civilian street? But actually it's not in the detail there. It's actually in dealing with people, dealing with crisis, dealing with uncertainty, because you would turn up to an incident. I always remember in my probation, there was a nasty car crash, four or five cars, parlour, overturned, people injured everywhere. And there's lots of bystanders, no ambulance, we were the first unit on scene. And everybody looks at you, you get out of the car and you think, right, I've no idea what I'm gonna do, but I know I need to do something. And so the more and more and more scenarios like that you face actually just develops a muscle memory. And it's like you go to the gym, you don't expect to get fit once. So, but constantly being exposed to these kind of scenarios and dealing with difficult people and having difficult conversations, it kind of gave a certain skill set that no matter actually what happened in the private sector, you'll be able to deal with it and and bring this confidence and ability to problem solve and communicate, which is, which is what it all comes down
1: to. And obviously in negotiation, kidnap negotiation, risk is there are huge risks there, make the wrong call. I don't know, my experience is, is having spoken to one other kidnap negotiator and watching films, but it is like you make a wrong call, things could go badly mm-hmm. wrong. How do you, do you have a different relationship with risk in your personal life versus your professional life?
0: Not really, I think for me, it's about weighing up the pros and cons. Um, like, like let's take a kidnapping for example. I would never make the decisions on behalf of the client. I would give them the options, pros and cons, and a recommendation, mm. and then a strategy about how we're we going to speak to the kidnappers, what are our outcomes here, et cetera. So there's no guarantees it's all going to work out. There's a good chance, a high proportion, mm. and this is, it's applying that to my personal life as well, and anybody's life really is, you look at your options. What's the outcome you're looking to achieve? And for me, the kidnapping, it was a safe and timely release of the hostage for an appropriate amount of money. <laughs> um, again, there's multiple options of how we can get there and which is the one that has the least amount of risk but the highest upside to it.
1: You could apply that to buying a car,
0: mm. a relationship,
1: which job do you go for. So is it pulling the emotion out of it a little bit so that you can be as pragmatic as you would be if you were on a court deciding between the red car and the blue car well that's
0: interesting if we weren't emotional creatures because we're emotional beings that think as opposed to thinking creatures that feel mm. so we are we make decisions emotionally and then we look to justify them rationally afterwards so emotion is always there and it's always a driver behind why you make a decision so say for example you want to earn a million pounds. You don't want a million pieces of paper with pictures of dead people on it. You want the feeling or the emotion that comes with it. You want a sports car, but it's the feeling you get with that sports car. Mm. So if you can understand what that emotion is as well, actually just gives you a bit more control over it.
1: Oh, it's so fascinating. Do you, When you're in a room at work and something happens, do all heads just go, hmm? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone turn to you. Are you the decision maker?
0: Again, that's another really, really interesting point because when, because certainly, kidnap negotiation is split into two parts. Really, to be a really good communicator or negotiator, it's important to separate the communicating, the negotiating, with the decision making. Which is why you, you, you know you come up with these things like, "Well, let me sleep on it," mm-hmm. or "Let me think about it," because it's important to keep it separate. So if you can master the communication, the negotiation side of things, and then it's putting a firewall in between then being able to problem solve, stay calm, and then make a decision. Mm. But you can do it yourself or you can get somebody else to, to come in and make the decision for you as we would deal on those cases.
1: Mm. It's really interesting. When I was talking about risk and decided it was going to be one of the questions that I would ask everybody, I remember hearing a podcast where someone said, what's on the other side of risk? Like if you do, what's on the other side? And I still don't have the answer to that. Maybe you can help me out with that. But what I know is that I had a really interesting guest on a little while ago called Daniel Pink, and he's done Mm. a regret survey. And I do know that we, from his work, that we regret the things that we didn't do more than the things that we did do. And so I don't know what's on the other side of risk. I don't know what that would be called, but I know that on this side of it, it's regret more than likely. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, I think so. I also think that it's not worth the time languishing <laughs> in regret because why mm. it's gone, that the past has gone. And I think it's interesting when, you know, you look back and every decision that you've made has been a clearly, um, highlighted stepping stone. Do you think, Oh yeah, I can see the path. Yeah. That decision led to that, which led to that, which led mm. to that looks really joined up, but when you're facing forward, mm. It's fog. You think you got the picture, you can try and vision stuff, mm. but actually you're not quite sure how it's gonna play out. And so I think it's focusing more on the gain as opposed to the gap as well. What have I, you know, where have I come from? What have been what's been the learning mm. of the quote unquote mistakes or the decisions I didn't take? Or what happens if I've taken that decision? Well, you could play that game all day long,
2: mm.
0: but you're only where you are, so you might as well make the most of it and then learn. Accordingly,
1: It's why I asked you about how long it took you to make the decision to go from the job that you love to going into the private sector, because I think that that can be worse than staying put or I actually think that's the worst part.
0: Yeah, and I, and I knew instinctively I'd made the right call there. Even though it was risky, when I followed through with it, I thought, yeah, this is the right call. Because I also knew, because I'd loved every single day of it. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be one of these late fifties old sweat detectives who were bitter and cynical and not enjoying the job. And I thought, if I can go when I'm forty, as I was at the time, I could still have this second career. And thankfully, I transitioned from the the job I was doing in the police to doing it in the corporate sector a few days later. So
1: it's I can't. We're going to definitely unpick it a bit more because it's just one of the most fascinating roles I think somebody can have. Um, But I am going to ask you something I ask everyone else, which is about excuses. And the reason I ask about excuses is because I think that they can be the things that we put between us and what we actually want. Mm. And it's like a buff. It's a soft buffer. It's like, oh, I, I can't get to there because this is in the way. Um, So it limits our beliefs and it limits our ability. And I wonder if you have an excuse, whether it's something you make for yourself or for others that gets in your way.
0: Mm. I think it's probably around time, as in excuses, what it needs to happen now. I get a bit impatient Mm. and it's something I work on all the time. Um, And the irony with that is, in every single case, whether or not it's an extortion, a kidnapping or whatever it is. One of my main roles is to buy time, to slow it all down. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Everybody needs to take a pause and breathe. Um, and yet personally I'm thinking, yeah, no, but we could, we, we need to be moving quicker, but actually we don't. And, um, say so it's a constant work in progress mm. around. Actually, thinking all good all in its good time. and um, yeah, and just because I think it's important and urgent, doesn't mean that you might think it's important and urgent. And so, yeah, that, it's that constant narrative that goes yeah. on.
1: I think that's a really interesting one because I think we are in that culture, aren't we, of have it now. Mm. We've never been able to have stuff quicker and obviously I have to reference Amazon at this point, I think their sales went up exponentially when they just did the swipe to buy now. So the fact that you can order something and it's either with you that day or very early Mm. the next day, we've just got now, 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 now. And we're beginning perhaps to lose the appreciation of waiting for something.
0: Absolutely. And I've actually deleted the Amazon app off my phone because I was just getting so used to
1: (laughs) What were you ordering?
0: (laughs) Well, everything and anything. Um, But... um, and I, but I think bringing in that stillness and those pauses, particularly transitioning from one thing, one task to another, you know, particularly people working from home now, they'll be on Zoom call back to back to yeah. back and there'll be other things I'll have to do. And it's it's factoring that transition between you finish a meeting, okay, appreciate you've got another meeting waiting, but just spend 30 seconds or a minute, just gathering your thoughts. Checking in with yourself, take a breath, do some jumping jacks, I was about to say. Make burpee if that's, if that's more your thing. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> um, grab a drink, but that just slows you down just a second mm. and then allows your nervous system and your brain to, um, to catch up and go, right, we're safe. Cause if, if it feels unsafe because we're out of control and particularly how quickly
1: mm.
0: we're thinking and operating, then it just plays havoc with your nervous system, which then impacts on your decision making.
1: I think we've glamorized this idea of like, rush, 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 go, go, go. And if I see somebody who is like, I've got this meeting and then I'm running to that thing, I immediately, my brain computes, ah, successful, everything's Mm. going their way. But you have done something, which when I read it, I had to read it a couple of times and you know exactly what I'm gonna say. It's the A1 flip chart that you've got. When I read that, I thought, wow, okay we can often operate thinking that we've got all the time in the world. I've never spoken to anybody who has actually kind of plotted it down and crosses it off. And it's not just like, oh, I'm just going to cross off the days until my holiday. It's, if the average life expectancy is 75, then I'm going to put this many boxes on a big sheet of paper and I'm going to cross one off at the end of every yeah. week. You've done it, you're an optimist, so you've done it for 100 years, haven't you?
0: I have, and just just to kind of explain for people, I came across this online, it's this 4,000 weeks um, concept, which I think is 75, 76 years. And then on this A1 flip chart piece of paper, there's a little square which represents a week of for those 76 years. And, um, and then you just fill it out for how many weeks you've lived, and then you've got this visual pictorial representation of how many, if you live to 76, that you've got left. And you're right, being an optimist, 100% optimist, because we get to choose right, and so why wouldn't you choose to be an optimist, Mm -hmm. is I thought, I'll go to 100, which gives me a few more lines, but then you walk into the room and it's there on the wall, and you think, right, touch wood, if I live every single one of those weeks, that's all I've got left. Hopefully. Obviously, who knows what's gonna happen. Mm. But when my kids first saw it uh, and other people, they, they see it's like the chart of death. <laughs> like, oh my god, I'm like, no, 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 you're missing the point. The mm. whole point is, is that every day is a blessing, every day is a gift. And actually you've got to make the most of it. Now, the danger with that is you start rushing to kind of achieve, 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 tick the box, get loads of stuff done. But sometimes with that, we can forget to enjoy the journey. Mm. So going back to the excuses is, yeah, I wanna get things done really quickly. Yeah, that's counterbalanced by the need to, hey, well, let's let's just enjoy the journey with it as well.
1: Mm. You spent 16 years in the same job, and as someone who spent a decade in the same job, I do look back and think, oh, would it have been better to have some variety around that, do the same job, but for different people? I know it's slightly different for you, but when you were filling out that uh, chart mm. and you were crossing off all of your weeks up to this point, what was that experience like? Because I imagine that you would have got to like, oh, 26, oh God, yeah, oh, that was that relationship or did you have a cathartic experience while colouring it Yeah, I did actually.
0: I thought, do you know what? It was a small paragraph of boxes in time. Mm. You know, we think... We, we can get so focused on a particular job or relationship or time of our life thinking this is it. My whole life just relates around this one thing. But actually when you when you scan out, when you zoom out, sorry, you go, well, actually that's just 10 lines. Mm. But I've got another 90 lines here of my life to, to live. And so that kind of puts you in perspective, being able to zoom out, see the bigger picture and then zoom in again.
1: So it gives you perspective, it makes you see that the things that maybe you had thought were really big perhaps weren't as big as you thought they were, yeah, and also focuses you on focuses you on how you want to use your time
0: absolutely and I mentioned this in the book around you get to focus on or you get to choose where you place your focus mm. and then you get to choose what it means, and then based on what it means or the meaning you're giving it, you then choose. What you're going to do about it. And so I think it's about people realizing they have the agency, they have the decision making, they have the responsibility to make these decisions. And we get to choose in every single moment who and what we're going to be. You know, so often people just outsource responsibility for their lives.
1: Well, when you say that, I was thinking about the word should, which is one of Mm. my worst words. I hate it. I hate it. Um, because if you should do something or someone says you should do that, I'm like, I want to ball up my fist and punch because should feels like a really toxic. Yeah. What do you, you obviously agree? Why? What, I, I think
0: it's an excuse waiting to happen. Yeah, I should, I should call them. Or yeah, we should meet up. Well, that's just, the but everyone says says that to me. Okay, we should meet up. I'm like, okay, we'll get your phone out. Then when when are we going to do it? Oh no, let me. I need to check. It's like okay, well, let's put a provisional date in, <laughs> um, and it's turning those shoulds into musts
1: because
0: mm. we only we only do stuff that well. Almost caught myself saying that we should only do, but to really get the the results we're looking for, it's to turn those shoulds into musts. Mm. Like, but why is why is this career that you're doing? Why is it a must for you? Or this decision you're at, or or the relationship you're in? Well, you know, is it really a must for you? And because so often we're in jobs we don't enjoy, mm-hmm. relationships that we're finding not particularly fulfilling, and it's, again, we have the we have the choice here to do something about it if we turn these shoulds into musts. I
1: was chatting to a friend about this, and it's almost like the the course that we set ourselves on. I should go to school. Yeah, well, you have to go to school. That's not really a should, but I should go to university. I should get a job. I should get a house. I should get married. I should have kids. That, I think, is something. Well, I think we are dismantling that a little bit now. But there are so many of my friends Mm. who are like, well, yeah, I just kind of did all of those things because I thought I should. But there wasn't really a huge Mm. amount of kind of, do I want all of that? It was like, I should if I want to be a participant in society. Because that's what normal people do.
0: So, So I'd invite everybody to go, right, what is it you want? You've got to be outcome-focused here. So, like, what do you want for your health and fitness? What do you want for your love life? What do you want for your purpose in life? What do you want for your career? You know, you choose your outcome and then plan accordingly. It may be the university is your thing, or it may be that you're going to do something else.
1: Mm. If someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I don't think I've ever asked myself what I want. I don't think I've ever really thought about it with that clarity. Do you have any tips for... I don't know, where to start, What's other than what do I want? If you were kind of breaking that down a little bit. You so mean for it,
0: career or life's purpose? or life. Just life.
1: Or, just life. God, that is a
0: million-dollar question, isn't, isn't it? it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no pressure.
0: I think it's getting that balance between doing things that light you up every day. It's, I, I genuinely, this is, I'm not just saying that, I genuinely believe I've not worked a day in my life. Because I've loved every single thing I've done. Mm. And because I get to get, well, I, I chose to give it a meaning that was empowering.
1: Mm.
0: You know, you and I could be doing exactly the same job or the same task. One of us could hate it. The one could be, this is just the best thing ever. Um, and so I think it's being able to get up every day and enjoy what you do, being fulfilled, yet it's something beyond yourself. Mm. If you're just doing it because it's all about me hoarding all the money, all the accolades or awards, you're probably going to miss a trick here. It's actually, can I really enjoy what I'm doing and does it serve society or other people above and beyond myself, really?
1: Paying attention, isn't it, to a few things. Um, Let's shift gears. Let's talk about challenges. Yeah, okay. (laughs) And there's been a few. (laughs) Sounds like you're going to break into song. So yeah, I asked guests about the challenges that they face. I said at the top of the show, it's because hearing from people how they've navigated through these things can be so, so helpful, yeah. especially if someone's listening and they're experiencing challenges of their own. So for you, what's your? let's cherry pick your favorite challenge that you've had to come face to face with.
0: Well, I was blessed with having a few challenges all come at once, really. Um, and it goes back to when I decided to leave the police. So it was just before my fortieth birthday, um, and I'd been on a kidnapping case, and I got back home. Um, you know, I put the key in the door, I walk in, and it's it, it's really quiet, and I, and I forgot. Oh, the kids are away with them, with their mom, who was married to her at the time. Uh, so I went upstairs shower, into bed, and then the phone rings and I get up, still half asleep, having not really slept for four or five days, have been on this kidnapping case. And, uh, I immediately recognize, I know who, who the person is on the phone and all they say is, she's only gone and done it. And then in that moment, i realise realized what they were talking about. And that my mom had killed herself on the third attempt. And so for me, that challenge was there was going all over the place, saving other people's lives. Yet I couldn't save the one life that mattered. And so that was like a juggernaut just coming along. Um, and then, but within three, four months of that, I'd got divorced. I'd left the police. And I found myself sat on the bare kitchen floor in an apartment with zero furniture thinking, hmm, my life has taken a bit of a turn recently. Um, And so it was that stacking of Mm -hmm. challenges that was really the the turning point for me where it all kind of came together. Um, And I knew in that moment I'm sat on the floor thinking, right, no one is going to come along and tap me on the shoulder and go, there, it's going to be all okay, Scott. This is the path out for you. This is the way out of this place. I realized I needed to take responsibility for this. And I knew I was not going to, as Churchill says, not waste a crisis in terms of something good is going to come out of this. I just knew it could, because, you, you know, you could go down this rabbit hole of despair and everything else. And it wasn't a case of, not going through grief or not going through the emotions—it was that's not going to define me. Mm. Um, and so I took that challenge, or the challenge is, and then thought, right, I'm going to reframe this, and which is why I'm actually sat here talking to you today, and and the and the trajectory that my life took after that interesting three to six months, of, a number of years ago.
1: you said it was a turning point as if your life might have been hurtling towards something different and then this happened and it was a real moment what was what did those terrible things happening in succession or those series of events that oh, i can imagine it just would have felt like one thing after another what was where did that steer you away from
0: i mean we'll never know but at the time i think in i wanted my life to, to just take a different course. I I just knew I'd I'd come to a natural end of that chapter. Mm. Um, And it just needed to go down a different path. And I knew that I could do something perhaps on a bigger scale. There was, um, yeah, just, just developing as a person. I think I probably, you know, you almost like you go through different chapters in your life. You you learn the lessons that you're meant to, whether it's a relationship, a job, mm. or whatever, and then a new door opens, and you go right. Okay, well, this is a growth opportunity here. Usually, it's lots of challenges, lots of disappointments, lots of quote-unquote bad things happening, but that there lies in the growth.
1: Mm.
0: And I just you knew I thought, well, I can't just go back to what life was like before. And so this was like a springboard to. You know working with Dave Asprey and as the part of the bulletproof coaching and Tony Robbins um setting up my own business, getting more and more experience in the kidnapping negotiation field, do more speaking and helping out charities and crisis hotlines and um going into schools about talking about mental health and and keynotes and then writing the book, so none of that would have happened mm. or, or it is unlikely any of that would have happened had uh, had those tragedies not happened the way they did
1: and it's it's such an interesting one isn't it because i think we can we can aim for calm everything is as it is nothing can change and actually when you change change is excellent if you don't want things to stay the same and i think you have to have that mentality or i do in that sometimes I get—I want to be really comfortable. I'm trying to get to a certain point and then there'll be a period of flux, change or what have you. And I'll think, oh, this is terrible. But then you weather it and you get to the other side and you think, thank goodness it's not the same as it was before because things are so much better now. But uh, that was a really intense period that you... There's a lot of change there. Yeah,
0: and and I think... But now, and um, where I am now, it's it's not being afraid of things happening. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, if I can go through that, what else? You know, you, you, you almost, not that you seek out problems or, or challenges, but you're not afraid of them when they do show up. Yeah. It's a muscle. It's just a muscle memory. And it's developing the certainty within ourselves that no matter what happens, it's only put in front of you because you've got the skills and the ability to overcome it. You may not know how you're going to do it. You not even know what skills they may be. Mm. But it's, again, it comes back to the mindset. You know, probably a third of the book is all about mindset and Mm. psychology around just developing this muscle memory of no matter what happens, I'm going to find a way through it. Mm. Because what's the alternative? The alternative is not, Uh, a happy enticing place to be Mm. um yeah and so the power lies in the reframe as they say it
1: is the reframe and to take your very intellectual answer I just wanted to add (laughs) my own not so intellectual answer to that which is um I think for a long time I was expecting somebody would save me somebody would notice me and somebody would help me and I think you've listened to my episode with Evie Pompoura, so yeah, you might great know what I'm going Thank you. But I remember being in therapy and struggling quite badly with depression. And I think one of the reasons it got so bad is because I was waiting for someone to come along and fix it or for there to be a magic fix mm. to the solution. And the most wonderful thing was a Harry Potter reference, which is in Harry Potter. Don't know if you're familiar with the books, but um he says oh my dad's going to conjure a patronus my dad yeah. cut. Can- this is when my dad turns up and conjures the patronus and saves us and then he realizes he has to conjure the patronus and it was that was my kind yeah. of parallel for it has to come from you yep. and you have to get really good at dealing with the crappy stuff to be able to be the savior or the the rescuer that you so desperately want to show up for you, you have to be it and show up for yourself.
0: Absolutely. You have to take part in your own rescue. Mm. Mm. You have to be your own hero in your own story. And you know, your life could be a masterpiece. It could be a blockbuster Oscar winner. <laughs> You're the hero in that and also the producer, and the writer and the director. <laughs> and yeah, you've got to take part in it because so many people now will, as I mentioned earlier, abdicate that responsibility. And as you mentioned there for yourself, there, yeah. it's and it's it's understandable why people think that, but the more you the but the more you take part in your rescues, mm. the easier it becomes.
1: Mm. Yeah, becoming your own advocate and just hundred percent being your biggest champion. You mentioned Tony Robbins there. It would be remiss of me not to ask you about the great Tony Robbins, um, the original, I would say. Um, for a lot of people, there's a the guru space or the space where people are doing similar mm. things to Tony is obviously massively saturated now. But I mean, he really was yeah, yeah. the original. How did you um, start working with
0: Tony? Is, well, actually, I first got started into coaching when I was in the police. And as part of promotion process, I um, got offered some coaching and I went up to my first session with a whole list, many, many pages of things and issues I wanted the coach to sort out. And he just went, no, that's not how it works is you're going to do the work and I'm going to ask you the questions and coach you through this. And at the end of that first session, I always describe it. um, It's a bit like having the world's toughest job interview, but with myself you know, pounding headache, sweaty back. And at the end, the coach said, okay, well, how do you want to play this? What do you want to do moving forward? I said, well, I want to do what you do. And so I then became an internal leadership coach in the police and then set up my own coaching business. Um, and then I got invited to be selected or go, go for selection to, be, to work with Tony for one of his coaches. And it was six months of the probably the most intense best training personal development training you could ever go through in terms it was like therapy on steroids um uncovering all the shadow sides and all the dark sides and all the challenges that we have um and yeah no just get to get to serve a lot of his clients all over the world through the coaching
1: a lot of people um You also talk about this when we were chatting beforehand and in the questions that I asked before guests come on the show, you talk about shiny object syndrome. Yeah, guilty as charged. (laughs) Now, just explain for listeners what you mean by that.
0: Shiny object syndrome is, okay, you you struggle with shiny object syndrome (laughs) if you have a pile of books that are still to be read Mm -hmm. or magazine articles or you'll start an online course And you won't quite finish it. And then you'll be signing up for another one and another one because, hey, it's only $47. Why (laughs) wouldn't you sign up for another one? And it's this distraction that takes you from completing and finishing whatever it is. Mm. Um, And being a hand on heart, die hard, shiny object (laughs) syndrome sufferer, I know that I have to work it. Right. Okay. I'm noticing the distraction. Am I going to move what I'm doing now and focus on it? Or am I going to stay Mm. on track, on course to complete what I need to before then moving over to this brand new shiny thing that's attracting my attention? The same thing could apply to relationships or jobs or whatever as well.
1: Well, the reason I asked you to talk about that in the context of Tony is because I'm sure a lot of people have bought a Tony Robbins book or actually it doesn't have to just be about Tony. It can be about self-improvement have bought self-improvement books, have liked the post on Instagram that is a really great, like, I don't know, GIF or something. It's like, yeah, self-improvement. And you're attaching yourself to these things without actually doing the work. And it's like, oh, I've got this book on my bookshelf, or I wear this t-shirt, I've got this mug, or I like that Instagram account. That means I'm doing the work, but you are not doing the work.
0: No. And and what I've noticed recently, resilience is a, kind of a buzzword in the personal development space and lots of people are talking about it online but you don't just buy a mug or t-shirt with hashtag resilience and it makes you resilient Mm. or you don't go on a a day's training and you suddenly become this super resilient person it's something you have to again you have to practice you have to do it these are doing things Mm. you have gone all the courses in the world but unless you're applying it you know, you know, knowledge is not power, it's potential power. It's actually putting it into action that counts. Mm. And then you ask yourself, okay, am I getting the results I want? Yes, great, do more of it. Or if I'm not getting the results I want in whatever area of your life we're talking about, well then, do something else. Mm.
1: When you said it was at six months and it was personal development, self-improvement on steroids. Yeah. Was it just because it was intense, or was it because, or was it a combination of focusing and confronting the the stuff that maybe it's been easy to not look at for a long time? Yes, and yes, to,
0: <laughs> to all of that, and obviously they they want to get you know decent people th- uh, to 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 coach for him in yeah. that sense.
1: Um, yeah, are you? Is that work, it's it's a unique way to do that work, but is that something that you would recommend people, anyone does?
0: Getting a coach, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think you can't, well, you don't know what your blind spots are. So having that safe, confidential space where someone can call you out on your BS... Mm. And you think, no, I'm going great. This is all working out well. And then somebody holds that mirror up and asks those really challenging searching questions. You think, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. All right. Because otherwise you're just building, you're building everything on sand where you really want to get those foundations in around your beliefs and your rules and your values about what you stand for and everything else. And then you can, you know, go headstrong to to meet your goals.
1: And how does that how did that impact the work that you do with negotiation?
0: Like anything in that space, it's about emotional self-mastery and it's about communicating and it's about influencing and persuading and supporting or enabling other people to get what they want as well. Mm. So it's all It's like a, like a Venn diagram, Venn diagrams in Mm -hmm. school. It's that sweet spot in the center where everything comes together. And actually the golden rule is it's not about you. First rule of communication and negotiation is it's not about you. It's about, okay, what does this person across the table need? Mm. You know, if we're negotiating now, we're communicating now thinking, okay, what's Emma's real need here? What needs is she looking to be met? What's her map of the world? How does she she view things? Um, Rather than going, right, okay, well, this is what I want, and I'm going to make sure I get it. And um, So it's more collaborative than subjugation, really.
1: Well, the easiest thing to do in communication is to assume that the person in front of you sees the world in exactly the same way that you do, right? Mm. And... As soon as you understand that, that
0: <laughs> There's 8 billion realities out there.
1: <laughs> Can you tell this is something I've struggled with? I've been in situations with people where I'm like, I just don't understand why they would do that because they have all the information I have, therefore they <laughs> have missed something. But it's, it's understanding that your perspective is completely unique and their perspective is completely unique.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and there's a big section in the book actually around... Everybody is going to carry on shouting. And there's a lot of that going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. Lots of shouting, no one listening. People will carry on shouting until they feel seen, heard, and understood. It's going back to the basics of, I had nothing in common with kidnappers. I weren't particularly nice people. I wasn't going to go for a beer with them. Nothing in common. No, No links of commonality there at all. Yet I still needed them to feel seen, heard and understood. And so empathizing with somebody, for example, it's simply me demonstrating to you that I understand your perspective, mm-hmm. not agreeing with it. I didn't agree with anything the kidnappers were doing or their map of the world, but it doesn't matter. And I think it's that's such a, and I'm going to use this term deliberately, a superpower. If you disagree with somebody, this is even more impactful. Because all I need to think is, well, I know Emma doesn't agree with me, but she's, she gets me. She understands where I'm coming from. Mm. And I think it drop, it's about dropping that ego part of it around. Because what happens in, in a, particularly in relationships, it's I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to argue the toss about why I'm right and you're wrong until mm. we're blue in the face. But you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to get around and around and around in circles until there's this empathising and demonstrating understanding of each other's perspective.
1: I spoke to someone on this podcast a little while ago about apologizing. Now, sometimes you want to apologize in order to just sort of make it end or go away. Uh, And because you are genuinely, you you haven't wanted to hurt that person's feelings or whatever it is that you're apologizing for. But then you might feel as though there's a power balance that's gone in their favor because you've let them off. And same with forgiveness. And so I wanted to ask you about that in the context of these conflicts that we might have. Yeah is you're trying to understand where somebody is coming from. And so you might show them compassion and understanding. Mm-hmm. But how do you do that without letting them off the hook or making them think that they have got you on side? It's an it's an interesting, I find that really fascinating. <laughs> You've done the work, so you were like, no, it's not that confusing, Emma.
0: <laughs> okay, what what I'm, I'm understanding your question, I think, is, is by apologizing to somebody mm. or somehow validating their argument, it's somehow letting them get away with it. Mm-hmm. Particularly if they've done something we don't agree with or they've said something we don't agree with. Is mm. that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, I, again, it doesn't matter. Mm. It, what, what, why, do I, why am I going to get worked up over the fact of or thinking that, oh, God, Emma's got away with that now, when in fact actually have you really got away with it? Mm. All I've done is demonstrated understanding of your particular viewpoint or your argument around that point. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And it's wore off a duck's back. It never never used to be, hey, Mm. trust trust me, I've learned this the hard way (laughs) over the years. Um, But again, this comes back to it's not about you. Or it's not about me Mm. in terms of that sense of why should I let you get away with it? Because then it just becomes a loggerhead, judgment, blaming, naming, and shaming. Mm-hmm. And that just doesn't really serve anyone, does it?
1: It's that thing, isn't it, of like you drink the poison expecting someone else to die. Yeah. we taking it to more emotional transactions rather than perhaps hostage exactly. negotiation. Um, but it does, it helps to think, actually, I'm not doing it for the other person. I'm not letting the other person off. I'm actually letting, I'm freeing myself from whatever negative communication that might have been yeah
0: and it goes back to the point I mentioned earlier around why are you outsourcing how you feel to somebody else
1: mm. which brings me to something I wanted to ask you okay. right at the top which is how do you shake off being in those negotiations high stakes you're looking at your what is it the whoop the whoop, yeah. the whoop and you're like yeah no heart rate's all right I'm not sponsored by them by the way but maybe I will be um, how do you decompress doing the job that you do because i imagine that it requires a period of decompression. Yeah. Oh uh,
0: yeah, that's a really good point. It comes down to routines and habits. Uh, you, and in my experience you look at high performers, high achievers in every industry and sector, whether it's sport, business, media, you look at their routines and their habits and you see how they are consistent at that high level. And so my own personal circumstances of, I'll do three things. Th- I call it the three M's. And ev- even now, every day I still do this. And But particularly when it gets high stress and in the conflict scenarios, it becomes even more important and even more focused. The first one is movement. Mm. So particularly in the mornings, it could be anything from going for a run, a bit of mobility work, yoga, even The latest one I do is whilst the kettle's boiling, three, four minutes about that for a kettle to boil, Mm -hmm. I put on Thunderstruck by ACDC. And every time the word thunder comes out, I'm doing burpees. But that's but you know what? Same with your jumping jacks earlier. So there's some kind of movement, whatever Mm -hmm. it is for you. And the next thing is I use the term meditation but loosely, because it means lots of things to lots of different people. But all it is. It's just taking the time, even if it's five minutes to go, right, mm. just still be quiet. So after a call with the kidnappers, for example, and it probably hasn't gone the way we wanted it to. There's been some threats some mock execution or whatever it is, it's like, right, everybody just take a pause, take a deep breath. Let's all go outside, um, do some jumping jacks. No. Um, <laughs> And But then it it helps just reset the nervous system. Mm. And then the third M is around mindset is just constantly learning. Just, okay, well, that's happened there. I can put that to one side and then I'll, you know, read a book or listen to a podcast. So it's the three M's for me. It's movement, it's meditation or mindfulness, however you want to term it, and then the mindset piece.
1: Mm. I love the mindset piece. I think... For me, one of the strategies I've used recently is if I'm ever feeling stuck, like things are the same, it's listen to a podcast with someone who you would, who you don't like yeah, or that you don't think you'd ever meet in real life. Yeah. And just because it just takes you out of your normal, takes you out of that groove.
0: Yeah, and a personal favourites for me at the moment are people like Ryan Holiday, you know, The Stoics, mm-hmm. great podcast, great, great content, and even stuff like Andrew Huberman. You know all the kind of neuroscience-backed stuff.
1: Yeah, it's got so complicated. Yeah, it's got so complicated. I mean, that's a whole other podcast. It, it
0: is. Um, yeah,
1: I just feel like we've raised the bar in terms of self-improvement. It started out being like, "Hey, let's do a little bit of biohacking. If you have this much caffeine in the morning, then you'll have a much more productive day." And now it's like, supplement like this and do this smoothie, and it just it feels like it's.
0: And, got and really that's intense. a really good point. And at the moment. You've got different, sp- you've got the whole spectrums when like, nutrition is a big one right now. You've got the carnivores at one end, you've got the raw vegans at the other, and everybody shouting, being that's their thing to do. But it's just like strip it back to mm. the basics, strip it right back. Mm. You
1: know, sleep, exercise, you know, the et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. It started out being really interesting, and now it's like, you will live forever if you live like me. Yeah, yeah. I think that can be really unhelpful um but okay good to know that you like those podcasts I'll add those to my list they're already on them um I want to ask you as I ask all my guests about regrets mm-hmm. because with high stake situations one can often look back and I don't know what it's like to do what you do but if I've had high-stake uh situation in my life I might look back and go oh <gasps> oh, I wish I'd done that, or my brain will play tricks on me and tell me that I should have done something or that if it hadn't gone the way that it went, mm. that something really terrible would happen. And I wonder what your view is like on regrets.
0: There's been a few. No mm. no, no regrets as, as my namesake sang back in the 70s, I think. Um <laughs> and I don't believe in having regrets. I think it's just a waste of energy. It really is. That's different to looking back, okay, how could we have done something better? And we call it an after action review. So after every case, we'd sit down and go, right, what worked? What really went well there? Great. Okay, well, can we, re- can we reinforce that? Can we repeat that? And actually, do you know what what didn't go so well? What were the mistakes made perhaps or what's the learning from this so we can then make sure we avoid it next time? And it's capturing that. So that's learning from, let's call them mistakes, or when things didn't go according to plan. Mm. There's certainly no regrets. Because for me, regrets means, oh, no, 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 I shouldn't have done that. That's just the biggest mistake. Mm. But again, you get to choose your emotions. So so how's that going to serve you? Implement. The learning from it does that make mm-hmm. sense it's like you might as well put yourself in a great state today and go right well, okay what can i learn from that i can't go back
1: because
0: mm-hmm. that's back in history now it doesn't ex- done. it's done, it doesn't exist anymore in the history of the world yeah <laughs> but what can i do moving forward um and that that comes really or becomes really um empowering
1: to to shift the focus like that second to should what if oh, no. i don't like the word should Although it obviously crops up, but when you're saying you should do or I should do, but also what if? I just whenever anyone says that, I'm like, but it, but but no, but it didn't. So let's move on, because it, it feels that feels like an unproductive way to look back.
0: Looking back, yes. Looking forward, I'd say there's lots of benefit, and I mentioned the book around. I call it the bunch of fives, and it's used by negotiators. Uh, all over around, but you can apply it to any aspect of your life. Quit the bunch of fives, as in you've got, you know, your, your palm of your hand, they're going, right, what are the five most likely things that could go wrong with this particular decision or in a, nego- in a kidnapping? What's the top five really tricky questions or challenges the kidnappers could come out with? And then you preempt them. So actually, if they do happen, you go, aha, uh-huh, I thought about this. Mm-hmm. And it just, again, it saves you going into that fight or flight mode and then you can respond more calmly and objectively. And so, yeah, preparation is one of the the keys to this as well. And so what if moving forward, yes. What if looking backwards? No, you're right. No, no point.
1: Okay. It's, uh, do you have to... Um, do uh, Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs and like where kidnappers' uh, psyche is a second skin? Do you have to like get into their heads in order to be able to anticipate that? And how do you shake that off at the end of a shift?
0: I think that's giving them more credence than, than is justified. At the end of the day, they're human beings. And out of 300 or so cases, there were patterns there and how people think, feel and act, particularly in those scenarios. Um, and we're all wired the same. Mm. Regardless of culture, language, religion, ethnicity, whatever, we're all wide the same and we have the same basic needs. Um, and it's understanding what are they really after here? Mm. And the kidnappers are looking for a bit of significance, looking for some certainty, they're not gonna get ambushed and they're gonna get the money. Um, and yeah, okay, if we wanna play to their ego a bit, let's do that. So again, there's no ego on my part in that sense, mm. or an un- unhealthy ego aspect. To allow them to think that if it means we meet our outcome of getting the, the hostages back.
1: Where does healthy ego come into it if there's an unhealthy we've all, we've one?
0: All got a, we've all got a, an ego and people go, no, no, I've mastered my ego. Well, I don't think you have. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah the, the healthy ego is this thing where we see, our, it's how we see ourselves in the world, isn't it? But it's in a good way as opposed to looking for the, you know, the kind of narcissistic, sociopathic type behaviours.
1: I'm sure you and I have know p- people like that. Oh, no, of course not. Um, I asked you to describe to me what your greatest strength was. And you've touched on it already, but I would like to uh, dig into it a little okay. bit more in the time that we have left together. Because you have said that your greatest strength is your ability to f- to reframe no matter what and to self-regulate under pressure. <clears throat> and I think we are in a very reactive world yeah. at the moment. Uh, whether you're, And I do think as well that uh, one of the things that happened post-lockdown is perhaps a lot of people were inside for a long time and then got very, very scared about what it was like to go outside. And so when they did, and I'm saying this, it was me, but I definitely... My friend, right? <laughs> yeah, my friend who um, spent a lot of time indoors by themselves and then went out into the world. And I, I definitely, when I um, emerged from lockdown, was very jumpy. Doing things that I had done with extreme confidence before, I get on the train. There'd be not; I'd be jumpy. I'd be walking down the street. There'd be more people than I had been around for a long time. I'd be jumpy, and I think what that did, perhaps to other people as well, because I have canvassed opinion, is just made people a little bit more fractious, a bit more reactive. Just thinking that the world outside of their home was some somewhere where bad things could happen, mm-hmm. and I think that's led to this reactive quite highly emotional state that people just tend to operate in, perhaps. Um, So what tips do you have to people who might feel like that Mm. in order to bring bring them down off the ledge a little bit?
0: Yeah, I think you could uh, apply this to any scenario that's like that. I call it the immediate action drill or the IA drill. And it's something that I keep metaphorically in my back pocket myself and it's around the the first step is really about interrupting the pattern you know you know the pattern interrupt around okay i'm thinking this it's let me let me just have an awareness and acknowledgement of what's showing up right now and that could be i'm a bit jumpy on the train because there's people too close to me or the sudden movements or loud noises or whatever it is Mm -hmm. it's having that awareness and acknowledgement and acceptance of where you're at and the second part of that is you've just got to ride the wave. And what I mean by riding the wave is the fight and flight aspects is you've got 90 seconds, this is all backed up through neuroscience. There's chemicals like cortisol and adrenaline pumping through your body. And it lasts for about 90 seconds. If it is still going on afterwards, if that story or that fear is, is, is still there, all you're doing is pressing repeat, 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 and storing your head. That's what it is mm-hmm. and so my advice is you interrupt the pattern by the awareness and the acknowledgement, ride the way for 90 seconds, and then after that it's then asking some really empowering questions. Force yourself to ask a difficult questions such as okay wh- wh- what's the learning here or what's the gift in this or what's what am I missing here or what else could this mean just to re- try and reframe mm-hmm. your thinking and what you're focusing on and the beliefs, et cetera. So we can kind of balance out that nervous system. I'm not saying it's easy, but again, like I mentioned at the beginning, it requires practice mm. time and time and time again, like going to the gym. You wouldn't go to the gym once and expect to be some kind of supermodel, but it's, 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 it <laughs> it's the same with the emotions and, and our, our mental state. It just requires daily, daily practice. Mm. Um, interrupting the pattern, riding the wave, Which just means, actually, let me go outside and get some fresh air, or let me just walk into a different room, okay, calm myself down with a bit of breathing maybe, and then, right, let me ask these questions, more empowering questions. Mm.
1: Yeah. You're making me think about a time when I was very early on in my uh, embracing of personal development and sort of trying to uh, sort out my own issues. I remember being in a very stressful meeting. And saying, I'm just going to go outside for a breather. And that was my way of communicating, like, this is too much. I can't deal with with you people at the moment. (laughs) And I didn't go out and take a minute. I went outside and called my friends like, oh, my God, they are a bunch of morons. And I wasn't helping any of the situations Mm. because it was really performative. It was that having it on a mug. It was like, I'm going to take a breather. I wasn't. I'm just going to go and be really, really angry somewhere else. And it can look like you're taking a breather, but you're not. That's why I mention it, other than to make myself sound like a complete diva. But I think it's that difference between it being performative and it actually being something that you're doing.
0: Yeah, and no one else needs to know you're doing it. Mm -hmm. It's an internal game. It's all an internal game. And unfortunately, you don't have to go too far now where there's lots of people displaying outwardly Look how look how great I am! Look at all this virtue signaling and everything else, and you think, mate, it's, it's an internal game. Mm. You know, you could be, we could be sat here, and I could be doing all three of those those techniques right now, and, and I don't know, and you, you, you don't know. But sometimes we like to feel, oh, you know, show showboat and be quite diva-esque in the mm. look at me how I'm coping with it. And if that's your thing, fine. I mean, there's, there's zero judgment here, and actually, judgment is one of those things that is the first thing that will interfere in any any form of communication Mm. and and negotiation.
1: To end our time together, I'm going to ask you, given everything that you see, given the things that you must have come across in your career and continue to come across, I wonder what makes you hopeful about the future? Well,
0: um, I often go back to a quotation by Albert Einstein, who says, the biggest decision you have to make in life is do I live in a friendly or an unfriendly universe? And that then provides the lens through which you see things. And yeah, I've seen the worst of what humanity can can do from streets of London, Iraq, and all over the world. However, I've also seen the best of what human beings can do in terms of the small acts of kindness and compassion and empathy that you can see on a daily basis. You know. I still get choked up watching DIY, SOS, Big Build and Secret Millionaire and all these programs that just demonstrate people's ability to do something for somebody else with no expectation of a reward. Um, And as I mentioned throughout this podcast, you know, there's lots of shouting, not enough listening. And I think if we can harness into that interconnectedness of all of us, And just learn to, we can disagree agreeably, (laughs) you know, that's not a dirty word, not Mm. a dirty concept, rather than I'm right, you're wrong. And I'm actually, I'm not going to even allow you to articulate your views. I'm going to shut you down because I'm right and you're wrong. Mm. And I think the more we can engage in conversation, in fact, the one thing I just invite people to take away from the book, actually, I learned this podcast is, it's about how to have better conversations Mm. or the importance of having better conversations where we listen more. And I think the world would be an even better place than what it already is.
1: Mm. I wholeheartedly agree. It's been such a pleasure to chat to you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a show. And why not tell a friend about the podcast? If you want to watch what happens behind the scenes, then head over to my Instagram where I'm at Emma Guns. And if you want to get in touch with me and share any risks, obstacles, challenges or curveballs that you've faced and overcome, then tell me on thebeautypodcast at gmail.com and it may feature in one of the midweek shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you on the next one.